Conventions were held in different places around the world under the direction of the Global Peace Festival. Delegates converged on Taiwan where elaborate ceremonies were held that would have reminded you from what I saw of uh, the opening ceremonies of the Olympics. Speeches were delivered and dignitaries from around the globe attended. The ceremonies took place simultaneously at different locations in many countries. In fact, the Peace Initiative will hold ceremonies this coming year in a dozen countries, including our own, preaching a message that global peace can come if we commit ourselves to three things, to the family, to acts of service, and to interfaith dialogue, which is, of course, the politically correct way of saying one religion should not try to evangelize another. We're all the same anyway. Let's leave everybody alone, which is exactly what the Apostle Paul did not do when he visited Athens and saw that deeply idolatrous nation worshiping God after God, and they even had a monument to the unknown God. And Paul gathered a hearing and said, let me introduce to you who this unknown God is and his name. And he is, by the way, the creator of everything. And he's coming back to judge the world. So you need to repent. So much for interfaith dialogue. I did a little research and learned that the Global Peace Festival flies under the banner. In fact, these are the big banners. One family under God. Sounds good, doesn't it? That's their motto. However, one leader in the movement went on record as saying that God, in that motto, can be interpreted to mean any God you desire. The important thing, I guess, is that you have one. I dug a little deeper. And in order to protect you, should you hear about this, found the underpinnings of the Global Peace Festival is in fact the Unification Church of Reverend Sun Young Moon, whose son now heads it. And yet this is gathering incredible momentum, incorporating nation after nation. One family under God is really interpreted to mean one family under any God but the Bible's God. And that's where Christianity becomes the problem. Christianity's core belief is that Christ is the only true and living resurrected and soon to be reigning God. There are not many faiths. There's one faith, one Lord, one baptism, and all the others are hopeless speculations. And because of that, we are involved in global evangelization to introduce to them, as Paul did to Athens, who this true and living God is. Global peace will finally arrive on the heels of the Prince of Peace. You remember that little song? I think I quoted it a couple of, maybe a year ago. It's from the 80s. It won't be old Buddha who's sitting on the throne. You remember, it won't be old Muhammad who's calling us home. It won't be Hare Krishna who's playing the trumpet tune because we're going to see the sun, not Reverend Moon. Isn't that great? We ought to learn how to sing that around here. It'd be good. Maybe in the new hymnal. I'm not sure you check. Nevertheless, the growth of peace movements capture the imagination of mankind, don't they? There's something in the heart as we've been studying the heart of mankind that longs for world peace, this golden age, and we have discovered according to the word of God it will come. It will come at last following the return of Christ who comes with his beloved to reign upon the planet. 
for a thousand years. The Apostle John has already revealed that much to us in Revelation chapter 20. Turn back there. Revelation chapter 20 verse 6 sort of summarizes it all and brings us up to where we are today. He writes, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now why does does God even introduce a 1,000 year reign? Why not move directly from the tribulation into the eternal state of a new heaven, a new earth? Why push off heaven for a 1,000 years? Why bother with a millennial kingdom a thousand-year reign. Well, let me give you five reasons quickly. First, to fulfill God's promises to restore Israel to their land. This is his promise, and he will keep his promise. Genesis 15, Jeremiah 30, many other passages. And this, by the way, the kingdom will be that time when the desert will blossom. This is when that that land will will flourish, when the reconstituted nation of Israel will occupy the land without disturbance for 1,000 years. God will fulfill his promise to restore Israel to their land as a redeemed nation, literally, physically. Secondly, the millennial kingdom will also fulfill Christ's promises to the church. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians of their future that they would one day judge the world. The eternal state has no world in need of judgment. This is the world, this kingdom, over which we will reign, rule, and judge. Christ has promised the church in Revelation 3.21 that she would reign with him on his glorious throne, and he will keep his promise. Third, the kingdom will fulfill the promises of God the Father to God the Son. Psalm 2, the father has appointed his son to reign and has already promised to give him the nations as his inheritance. You remember Satan tempted Christ by offering him these kingdoms, the kingdoms of the world. If Christ would only circumvent the the, the cross and the suffering, he could have it now. And Christ knew that Satan's promises were nothing but sawdust and sand The kingdom of the world would be his inheritance according to divine plan. And and that will come and it will be the divine display and vindication of Christ's glory. Fourth, the literal millennial kingdom will occur to provide an answer to the prayers of the saints who've been looking for a city constructed not by hands as Abraham did, but made by God, whose architect and builder is God. And we have, since that point up to this point, and will continue to pray as we've been taught, thy kingdom, what? Come. And it will literally come. It will physically come. The millennial kingdom is going to come in order to answer the prayers of the saints of all ages, It will come to display the glory of Christ. It will come to fulfill the promises of God to Israel and to the church. One more, the millennial kingdom will exist to ultimately demonstrate beyond any doubt and any denial that mankind is utterly sinful and without excuse. 
Apart from the grace of God, man will choose to listen to the serpent and eat the forbidden fruit. And he will do it over and over and over again. Mankind is naturally in rebellion against God until it is broken in repentance toward God. In our last study, Satan was incarcerated and the Savior was coronated and this golden age had begun. And it began with the saints returning with Christ to set up the kingdom. That would include you, the church, those who believe in in Christ, Old Testament saints. It would include tribulation martyrs. We make up the immortals, the glorified co-regents who reign with Christ. Now those who survive the tribulation, and there will be millions of people, by the way, who do, who have also believed the gospel of Christ They've lived and they've survived and now Christ has come, including, by the way, the nation Israel, who will look and see the one coming whom they pierced and there will be a national Israeli revival, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, and they will be converted to Christ as Messiah. All of them as mortals will then enter The kingdom, the kingdom comes and they're alive. So only the redeemed, Christ followers, are allowed to enter the kingdom. At the beginning of the kingdom, everyone is a believer in their mortal bodies and, of course, reigned over by immortals. The church, Old Testament saints and tribulation martyrs. Matthew 25 informs us that those who do not believe in Christ, when he comes, will be judged and sent to await their final judgment as we'll study as the chapter comes to an end. Now these tribulation believers, although converted, will still have their sin nature. They're not glorified yet. They are redeemed. They are secure. They don't have to worry over this period of time if if, if they're going to get kicked out of the kingdom for a sin any more than you have to worry about being kicked out of the body of Christ. You are a son or daughter of God through faith in Christ. You didn't get it by being good. You can't lose it by being bad. We live good lives because we are going to heaven, not so we can. As the religions of this world offer hope, just try to be better. Well, the issue here before us is that these redeemed subjects of the kingdom who have their sin nature as mortals will pass along their sin nature to their children and their children just as it has been passed along since Adam's fall. And each successive generation will need to hear and respond to the gospel of salvation through Christ. The plan of salvation has never changed. It is either the saints looking toward the Redeemer who will come, we who look back, or the millennial subjects who can look at Jerusalem and see him reigning and hear the gospel of his death, burial, and resurrection. What a a great time the kingdom will offer for evangelism. The millennial temple will hold annual sacrifices as memorials to the Lamb of God. They won't be 
expiatory. They, they won't take away sin. They're simply memorial, just as communion is observed by the New Testament church. It doesn't take anybody's sin away. It doesn't dispense grace. It's a memorial where we remember the body and blood of our Lord given for us. In, in the kingdom, both will be taking place. In fact, our Lord told the church, his apostles, and then the church that he would not drink of the fruit of this vine until he drank it new with us in the what? Kingdom. So evidently, these are going to be visual aids for the gospel. The sacrifice is held annually in Jerusalem. The picture Christ's sacrifice for sin the communion cup and bread illustrating the memorial of the New Testament church. We don't know how it's going to be observed and how often. But understand, we are introducing people and as immortals, strategizing with the believing mortals to get the gospel to the world. Imagine what we would, we, we can introduce people to no longer an invisible God, but look, there he is. Believe in him. I think it'd be a great time to to be involved in evangelism. You can see the glory of his throne. I agree with evangelical scholars who say that these annual sacrifices will be opportunities for the nations to come and, and see Jesus Christ personally and physically, probably leading in some way. In fact, nations are required to come with their delegates. We'll look at that in just a moment. But what a time to be alive. What, what a wonderful time. Whether, whether as a glorified immortal or a mortal, what a wonderful season, epic era this will be. What an amazing kingdom. Let me give you several aspects. First, there will be a perfect government. No bribery, no corruption, no greed. No dishonesty from from local officials all the way to the top, the parliaments and and the senates of our world. No immorality, no no self-serving among government officials. There will be no elections, by the way, either. Imagine that. For the glorified saints will occupy the positions of authority around the world as co-regents with Christ. Revelation 5.10. Not only is there a perfect government, there will be a pristine environment. Christ returns and and changes not everything, but many things back to Eden-like systems. Pollution becomes a problem of the past. Natural resources will revert back to the purity of early creation, although rain will be abundant, Isaiah 30. Land will reflect the abundance of God's glory and creative power, Isaiah 35. All of the animals will be changed back to herbivores once again as they were in the Garden of Eden. Isaiah the prophet wrote these amazing words, and and I've read them before already. Let me read them again, perhaps with new understanding. He speaks of the kingdom and says, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the goat. You're going to get along. The calf and the young lion will feed together. Not on each other, but together. And a little boy will lead them. In other words, they're going to be his playmates. Won't that be fun? I think it'd be great to have a young lion. Well, never mind. Isaiah goes on. Also, the cow and the bear 
will graze. Note that. And the young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Very clear. The curse is not entirely lifted, but partially. We're given a glimpse of the eternal state. There will still be death among the mortals, although they'll live a long time as we'll see. Animals will still die. In fact, there will be animal sacrifices in the temple. And those sacrifices will also be eaten by the priests, implying that, that we will still be able to enjoy meat and, and, and you will still be able to enjoy vegetables. <laughs> but the animals will no longer be a threat. They, they will be for the sheer enjoyment and pleasure and exploration and discovery along with creation of the population of earth, including us. As it demonstrates the creativity and glory of God. I had a young boy come up to me and ask me if our pets were going to go to heaven. I told him I believed Isaiah made it pretty clear that we'll have animals to play with. In fact, I said, son, you're going to have some pets that your mother would never allow you to have right now, but it's going to be a blast. His eyes just were wide. He was so excited about it. I had to tell him that we don't have any biblical indication that, that our pets will be in heaven no matter how many times they've been blessed by the church. I read one interesting article not too long ago that said that the pets of Christians get to go to heaven. I mean, that's just bad theology. I've had some pets I'd rather not see in heaven. They're going to ruin heaven for me if they follow me around. If the pets of believers go to heaven, where do the pets of unbelievers go? I mean, bad theology just gets worse, doesn't it? We do know that animals will no longer be predators, and I believe, we have every reason to believe, if you just look at the prophets and the descriptions and all the references to animals, that every uh, species will be represented, and they will, however, be tame, docile enough to play with, from the dinosaur to the leopard to the cobra. There will be a perfect government. There will be a pristine environment. Third, there will be a, a prolonged lifespan. Mortals who are born and live during the kingdom will live such long lives. Isaiah 65 has already told us that a man at the age of 100 will be considered a, a, a very young man. Again, the millennial kingdom will reflect many of the conditions of early creation. And so you go to Genesis 5 and you read about Adam living, you know, 900 and. 30 years, and, and Kenan living 910 years, and Lamech living 777 years. All of this implies a return to the protective climates and conditions of life in and around and following the Garden of Eden. There will be, a, along that same line, fourthly, pronounced health improvements it's for the mortals will be glorified. We will never be diseased again. But for all of the mortals who live during the kingdom, the prophets reveal that the subjects of the kingdom will never say, I am sick. That's what Isaiah says in chapter 33, verse 24. Those mortals who enter into the kingdom with disabilities and sicknesses will be immediately healed. Isaiah 33:24. Isaiah writes of this glorious moment as the kingdom begins in chapter 35 he says this the eyes of the blind will be opened the ears of the deaf will be unstopped 
The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Perfect government, pristine environment, prolonged lifespan for mortals, pronounced health improvements, and fifth, profuse resources. And I'm almost done. I'm almost out of peas, okay? Profuse resources. The kingdom, now listen, will be a time of unparalleled abundance and prosperity. Everything, the prosperity preachers and teachers are misinterpreting in our age are intended for that age. Joel 2, Amos 9, and others. Not for this age. They're misinterpretations of the health and and abundance and prosperity of that age is causing untold sorrow and confusion, not to mention more bad theology in so many people that today believe they, they just don't have enough faith. No, this is the era of health and bounty and peace and dominion and righteousness. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2.14. Principled rulers, sixth. We as confirmed immortals no longer struggling with our sin nature. That is gone forever. We will rule and reign without any double-mindedness. Without any temptation to sin with perfect justice and perfect balance and wisdom and godly principle. The final aspect I'll refer to is first and foremost in its importance. I've just saved the best for last, but it's this. There is the present perceptible Savior. In other words, we will have the ability to serve him, not as we do now. An invisible Lord, we struggle to follow in our flesh and our minds, we struggle to understand. And that next step often is to us in the dark. But there it will be face-to-face communication. Face-to-face orders and obedience. Face-to-face devotion. Face-to-face appreciation. Imagine you would be able to say to him, by the way, I just want to thank you, Lord, for that. Imagine him saying to you, well, I want to thank you for what you just did. Or I want to, I want to thank, I appreciate what you did yesterday. Imagine that. Face-to-face adoration. This is the World Peace Festival for real. And it will last a thousand years under the banner of this family under the one true and living God. Now surely the world, the mortals that are born by the billions over a period of time of of such great health, when everything is flourishing, when there's justice and righteousness, when you have the visual demonstrations of, of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and you have the memorial sacrifices and and you have immortals reigning with him surrounding the globe, surely 
the world will believe and, and under these conditions follow after such a benevolent ruler. No doubt billions will. But the promised millennial kingdom comes to a close with this significant event. Notice verse 7 of Revelation 20. And when the thousand years are completed, note they've finished, they've, they're completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. Now wait, wait just a second. Satan, you'll notice in the text, does not escape from his prison. Satan will be what? Released. Why in the world would God let Satan loose? Lock him up and throw away the key. Why, why in the world open that cell door? God intends to prove that man has not changed from the garden to the kingdom. God intends to reveal that mankind is ever ready to rebel. They only need an excuse and they only need a leader. You think about it, how quickly in our own country... Our own country has turned its back on biblical morals, the beliefs of our founding fathers. I mean, imagine how quickly it's happened that, that the belief that, that all men were what? Created, say that word with me, created by God. Now is nationally disavowed. Now in less than 250 years, just seven generations, our national education system promotes the absolute absence of a creator and anything having to do with the God of the Bible. Imagine what could be happening in the minds and hearts of people over a thousand Even in these conditions, we have hints of trouble already from the prophets. The prophets tell us that rebels during the kingdom will face swift judgment, implying what? There will be rebels in the kingdom. We're told by the prophet Zechariah that nations who refuse to come to Jerusalem for the annual worship of Christ will not receive rain upon their land, implying there will be nations who, as time progresses, will stop sending delegates to honor Christ. In fact, Zechariah chapter 14 implies that Egypt as a nation will refuse over time to worship Christ and there will be a famine in their land. Mankind will simply love his autonomy, his, his self-deceived autonomy. He will love his sin rather than the Savior. Imagine here in a perfect society with pristine living conditions and prosperous health and, and, and plenty of resources, mankind by the millions will be ready to follow the devil rather than worship Christ. This is the Garden of Eden, part two. And human nature has not changed from the garden to the kingdom. And everybody who might say to God, my conditions were only such that disallowed me from ever believing, he will say you had perfect conditions. And it did not change your nature. 
and your rebellion. And Satan hadn't changed one bit either, has he? As soon as his prison door swings open, he takes off to bring one more insult to the face of Christ. He already knows he's defeated. He knows Revelation chapter 20 better than we will ever know it. But he doesn't care. He hates Christ just that much. What matters most to him is that he could possibly deceive a few million more people who are ready and waiting. That he could somehow implement, instigate some kind of of betrayal, some kind of uprising, some kind of rebellion, so that he could cause an eternal created being to raise his fist against creator God. He revels in that. He loves it. And even though he knows his end, he'll he'll do it again. Robert Mount said it this way, a thousand years of confinement does not alter Satan's plan. Nor does a thousand years of millennial conditions change man's basic tendency to rebel against his creator. Nothing is altered by the mere passing of time. You have had now, up to this point, 25 generations or so born into the kingdom as mortals. Children of believing parents in this dispensation who hear the gospel, who may be in our presence today, who have outwardly conformed, but inwardly they are rebels. They are what one author called gospel-hardened. So also in this era, there will be those outwardly conformed, children, great-grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and on, who outwardly conform, but, but they are glory hardened over time. Yeah, 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 we see the golden palace. Yeah, we, we, we took a field trip 175 years ago when I was in fifth grade and we saw it. Yeah, yeah, we know that there's a king. We've seen the bright lights. We, we've heard that he died for us 5,000, 4,000 years ago or whatever. So what? what? What right does he have to rule over my life and what what? What right does he have to tell me I can't live in there? And Satan will will then appear and be ready and he'll say, you know, you're exactly right to feel that way. I think God's intimidated by you. I I think we can take him. That's what he said to Eve. God's afraid of you. Why should Jesus Christ decide who lives in that house of gold. Satan has lost none of his cunning. He knows exactly what to say and what to do to bring about one final rebellion. Men are still men. Sin is still sin. And he's had thousands of years to practice bringing the two together. And he will do it again for one last uprising. John writes, notice verse 8, that he's able to recruit from the four corners of the earth. In other words, from the four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. That There are actually people living all around the planet ready to take on God, even in these conditions. Now, John mentions, you might notice, Gog and Magog creates a little bit of confusion here. 
They represent the Russian, the northern nations who've already marched against Israel at the beginning of the tribulation. Some believe they must be the same thing, the same battle. They're different battles. Even though these two unique names reappear, Ezekiel's battle is different than this one. Ezekiel's battle will take place at the beginning of the tribulation. I believe it appears in in Revelation chapter 6 in that first war mentioned. The conflict here in Revelation 20 takes place at the close of the millennial kingdom. You can't miss that. Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39 join other nations living around the Middle East, but in Revelation 20 here, the armies are recruited from around the world. After the battle takes place at the beginning of the tribulation, all the dead are buried, we're told, in Ezekiel's prophecy. But here in Revelation 20, as you'll see in a moment, the armies are instantly cremated as fire falls. There are no graves. Gog and Magog are certainly literally included in this battle. But their names are also emblematic of the enemies of Israel and her God as they have been for thousands of years. Listen, you know what's happening here? God is simply going to allow the unredeemed people of planet Earth one last gasp. One final expression of defiance which resides in the heart of unredeemed mankind. One final fling to forever prove that the fallen nature of mankind is not partial, but total. But this really isn't much of a battle, is it? In fact, it's really just a divine execution. John records in verse 9, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Not one shot is fired. The implements of war that they have been able to craft and create very quickly lose no gunpowder. Suddenly it's as if the sky bursts into flames. Imagine it this way. The armies, we're told here, have... Their number resembles the sand of the seashore. Again, a staggering thought. But they've surrounded Jerusalem. And suddenly, a falling ring of fire surrounds the city of Jerusalem. It's protected on the inside. And then it it, it radiates outward in all directions until all of the armies are engulfed and destroyed by this descending sea of flame. And the final judgment is moments away. That'll be for another study, but let me ask you, what does this final rebellion prove? Let me say the same thing three different ways. First, this final rebellion proves that a perfect ruler does not guarantee a perfect heart. Secondly, it proves that a clean environment, you can put anything you want into the word clean, prosperous, healthy, whatever. A clean environment does not erase inward corruption. Number three, solving social problems does not solve the sin problem. 
Now listen, mankind's biggest problem has never been external, but internal. Mankind is a heart condition, and his biggest problem is, is that his heart is corrupt and his nature is, is fallen. He must be redeemed. You can feed him. You can clothe him. You can educate him. You can medicate him. You can insure him. You can employ him. You can heal him. But there's still a problem, and that is that you're going to have to bury him. And none of that then mattered. The greatest problem is that he is a, an eternal being. And his greatest problem is internal. His problem is not the parents he went home with. You won't stand before God and say, I, I, I would have believed in you if it hadn't been for those rotten parents of mine. The problem isn't how they raised you. Whether you were breastfed or bottle fed. Whether you were in the top 75 percentile of normal growth patterns or at the bottom of the class. Whether they put the, the best name brand footy pajamas on you or got them from consignment shops. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what kind of car they drove in. Doesn't matter what kind of school. Doesn't matter how they potty trained you. I'm just going to be real practical. Whether they bribed you or gave you a puppy or, 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 or spanked you, I don't know. The, the problem is never out there. The problem is in here. The problem is always us. And the millennial kingdom is going to be perfect conditions. Nobody can complain of their neighborhood. Nobody can complain of their clothing, their food, their education, whatever. None of it. Everything is right, perfect justice, perfect balance, a perfect lawgiver on the throne, and yet this final rebellion will prove that man might seem to conform to God's standard. He's a pretty good guy, yet his heart is disloyal and ready to rebel against that authority given the chance. You ever been driving down the interstate and and you come up on a pack of cars both lanes going 55 miles an hour. And you think, what is their problem? That speed sign is a, is a guideline. What it means is if you can't go that fast, get off the interstate. It's the minimum. It's, you know, you have that conversation. Maybe. I don't know. But, but you wonder, and you go for several miles until finally, about a quarter of a mile up ahead, you see a state trooper pulling off on an exit. And then what does everybody do? except you and me and a few other righteous people. (laughs) Speed up. The presence of that law enforcer produced conformity to the law, but not loyalty to the law, and certainly not love for the lawgiver. There has been in the kingdom outward conformity. But over time, well, well, you know, the king is way off in Jerusalem. (laughs) Maybe he can't see this far down the interstate. A lot of trees between us. Can radar go through trees? Have you ever wondered that? I haven't. (laughs) Shame on you. (laughs) This final rebellion is going to reveal that apart from God's saving grace, mankind will be unmoved by peace and joy, 
and righteousness and plenty and even the presence of his glory. And they will be deceived into believing they can overthrow that ruler seated on the golden throne and they will march against him. This will be the final rebellion against God. Before we wrap up our study today, notice in verse 10 that that Satan is cast forever. He's thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. The verb thrown, eblethe, translated cast, perhaps in your translation, or thrown, is a prophetic, aorist, passive verb which doesn't sound exciting to you at all, but it is very exciting. What this verb tells us is that some unnamed agent actually throws Satan into hell. Who is this unnamed agent? He's unnamed. I don't know. We're not told. But I'll give you my guess. I mean, you pay me to sit around all week and think about this stuff, so I'm going to give you... I'm going to give you my guess. We know it would be somebody empowered by God, obviously. One person plus God is a majority, right? We've already seen an angel representing the the godly hosts of angels that refuse to follow Satan. We've already seen a representative, an anonymous angel called forward, who's been given the power and privilege of casting Satan into the abyss where he is incarcerated for a thousand years. So the angels have had their due. I don't think this would be Christ. Just one word would be enough to cast Satan into hell. Yet God has chosen someone to carry out his word of judgment. If the agent isn't a representative of the triune God, if if he isn't an agent of, of the angelic host, what do we have left? The human race. What human being could best represent the human race in casting Satan away for good? My guess, Adam. What better representative of the human race to carry out this task than the first human created and the representative of fallen, defeated, dying humanity. It was Adam and Eve who first heard the serpent's words of defiance, right? Eve, you were deceived by the serpent. Adam, you knowingly rebelled. You chose Eve over God. You chose personal autonomy over the sovereignty of God. Imagine, would you, with me? And again, we're just imagining. Imagine living for thousands of years, forgiven, absolutely. Yet, the memory is there, as our memories will be, forgiven, perfected in that glorified state, but memories still. Imagine 
living with the understanding that it was you who opened the door to sin. It was you who opened the door to sorrow. It was you who opened the door to death when you rebelled. Imagine for thousands of years having your name attached to the sin nature, Adam's sin nature. How would you like it to be Scott's or Stephen's or Nancy's or Susan's sin nature? And all of humanity thinks of you. Imagine us talking about the, the, the sin of you. It's the sin of Adam. Part of God's plan all along for the glory of his grace to be revealed. But here at the end of this final rebellion, what better person to end Satan's grasp over humanity than the human being whose sin began it all? I hope it's Adam. I would love to see Adam, the representative of all of us who have spent our lives under the curse and in the battle. I'd love to see our, our, our human father who failed have the opportunity to cast the deceiver away forever. What a moment of triumph for the redeemed human race. We don't know if it's Adam, but we do know that it does end. This is Satan's everlasting doom, and this is the last time he will ever be seen by the redeemed again. What great promise for us. Through Christ, our gracious, sovereign Lord, we have been redeemed. We sinners, we utter failures. And we prove it every day, don't we? We prove our connection to Adam's fallen nature and our children after us. But think of this. Think of this. Listen, when, when Satan comes along to you and reminds you of your past and your present, you remind him of his future. Amen? You remind him of his future. Stand with me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for giving us a little bit of information about the glory of these days and our security even now. Thank you for the privilege and the thrill of realizing through the study of your word that we are already guaranteed a place among the immortals by faith in Christ alone. Thank you for Satan's doom and end. Thank you for the rule of Christ and the crushing with one command of the final rebellion. If you're here today and you've come by faith to Christ and you know that you belong to him. Would you thank him for your salvation? Would you thank him for your position and your future? And while you do that, let me very quickly invite anybody standing here. You know you're conforming outwardly, but inside there is a rebel. Perhaps the Spirit of God is calling you 
And you've heard enough of the gospel to know that 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 gospel is for you, not just for everybody around you. That that sinful propensity is yours and it must be atoned for or you will be judged by God. And you've heard enough. We'd love to take the word of God to make sure that this faith that you embrace is genuine. And you are saying farewell to those who would rebel against the sovereign rule of Christ and you welcome him. Father, thank you again for this grand day. Help it to permeate our thinking and be reflected on our, in our actions. Give us dignity and, and diligence. We are an immortal, a future co-regent with Christ. No wonder we've been challenged to do everything that we put our hand to with excellence. May us, by your grace, do that this week, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen.